Hey folks, welcome back to the InSearch podcast. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Emma Colucci, whose research focuses on education and development through the medium of sport. We hope you enjoy this episode. And without further ado, let's jump right in. All right. Hello again, dear listeners, and welcome back to InSearch. I am so, 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 so excited today because I have one of my uh, nearest and dearest friends here, Emma Colucci, and she's going to be telling us some really interesting stuff. Um, so uh, how are you doing, Emma? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Feeling pretty good. A little sweaty from the bike ride over here, but... <laughs> I was just gonna ask you how your bike ride was. It was it was good. Um, sunny, hot, sweaty, which is usually you know all good things of a bike ride. I would prefer to arrive places not as sweaty, but <laughs> you know it happens when you're you know moving yourself as your transportation. When you're the sort of vehicle, you get sweaty. That's all right. So for. For anyone who's privileged enough to know Emma, um, (laughs) they'll know that uh, many of her arrival stories involve uh, her various bike rides around Toronto, which is really a terrible city for any bike rider. It really is, yeah. It's pretty bad. It's pretty awful and um, also involves (laughs) sweating around the city. (laughs) Yes, lots of sweat, lots of sweat. I actually, I don't want to go into too many stories here, but one guy once... I remember I was riding somewhere, it was hot, and I, you know, stopped at a stoplight, and this guy was, like, waving me down on the side of the street, and I was like, oh, you know, took out my headphone. He's like, hey, you're really sweaty, and I was like, yeah, no, I, I know that. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, you have fun, fun interactions with the public as well. <laughs> always, always some good stories coming from my rides. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, uh, welcome to Insert. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you. So why don't we just start, tell me a little bit. So it's been a while, right? So tell me a little bit about yourself and what brings you to Insert and what research we're talking about to begin with. Sure. So um, just for a bit of background context, I finished my master's thesis in 2010. So it's about a solid nine years ago. Um, and, you know, when I finished my undergrad, I admittedly hadn't really planned on doing a master's, but, um, you know, quite frankly, didn't, <laughs> didn't really totally know what I wanted to do job-wise yet. I knew sort of different things I was passionate about. Um, and I remember kind of, you know, I've played sports my whole life. That's, that's been a passion of mine uh, ever since I was a kid, specifically soccer. And, um, you know, never really, that was a very different world than my academic world. It was, you know, there were sports and then there was school. Um, but I sort of later on, I guess, in my undergrad, start of, started learning about the field of sport as a tool for development and peace. So the field is now mostly referred to as Sport for Development and Peace, or SDP. Um, and when I learned about it and sort of, um, you know, using sport in, you know, taking it out of its sort of more traditional, just sort of gaming context um, and using it for things like, uh, you know, education and development uh, was really exciting to me. And so I was kind of learning about that as I was finishing up my undergrad in communications um, and was learning about sort of sport as a tool for um, alternative communications and, and alternative education and was really interested in that concept. Um, and so was able to sort of continue my master's uh, 
in a program called Communication and Culture, which was a joint program between Ryerson and New York University. Um, that was very broad and very interdisciplinary, but um, um, so thinking about my passion for sport um, and also a lot of the sort of work I had done in school and just outside of school, um, volunteering focused on, you know, I would say broadly social good. Um, but that sort of, I guess, intersection of sport and social good, um, the program, I guess the inter interdisciplinary nature of the program allowed me to focus in on that as a, as a thesis subject and I'll elaborate more as we go. Um, but it was, a, it was a real journey and not necessarily an intentional one to get to where I was going throughout my master's. Um, but I remember, I actually remember really distinctly the moment when I was on a bus and I, I kind of had put together what I was going to focus my thesis on um, and that realization that I could focus on sport and also social good um, and using some of my academic sort of background in communications and alternative communications um, was really exciting and so that's sort of how I got there. Right and you know I think that's one of the kind of interesting things about the world of sports and academia is that this relatively new field has been picked up by academics now and it's it's something that all of us not just the people who are really interested in sports but all of us we understand sports as something that is not in the academic world and so all of the literature at least that I've read about sports has really been illuminating because it it makes you reconsider sports through avenues of social justice, social science, and other kind of fields like that, you know? And so it's interesting to hear you talk about this as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's interesting as someone who has experienced sport as, as a participant and a lover of it, um, you know, throughout so much of my life, my non-academic life. But when you really delve into it, there is so much to sport. Um, you know, that can be sort of critiqued, picked apart, or, you know, things about it that we don't recognize when we're just sort of looking at it as, as a form of entertainment, but it, it is so much more than that, and that's, you know, part of what my work, too, is sort of legitimizing um, sport in certain ways. Right, it's like multifaceted, right? It's Definitely. not just something that, that exists in its own right. It's rather something that is that exists in other institutions and in other parts of our lives. And it's really important for us to see how that becomes other parts of our lives, right? And in your case, development. So. 100%, yes. It's, it's very multifaceted and uh, um, I think doesn't always get the the credit it deserves but also you know like any tool can be used in good ways but also bad ways as well and it it uh, I think plays out that way um it plays out in a lot of different ways depending on who's talking about it and how we're sort of using it absolutely um so tell us a little bit about so what do you do now Emma Okay, now now I work at uh, the City of Toronto. So about two years ago, started um, working at the city in sort of a research and policy um, focus there. Before that, I um, actually was lucky enough to find a job that was directly related to the, the work I had done in my master's and, and specifically on my master's thesis. Um, and so I worked at an organization that uses sport and play as a tool for, for international development for about five years. Um, <clears throat> but then through, you know, we'll get into a lot of it, I think, as, as we go, but just um, sort of my, some of my views on um, sort of having studied the world of sport and international development uh, from, a, from a very sort of critical 
social theory lens um, and then to sort of see how it plays out in reality was, was interesting, let's say interesting here. Um, and I think there were certain things that um, made me sort of not want to continue in that field and sort of went from the international realm and really wanted to focus in on doing pol policy and research work um, in the very local context. Um, so sort of went from international to a municipal um, sort of governance setting. Okay, great. Um, all right, so let's sort of delve into your research all then. Right. Uh, so as the podcast uh, listeners know, we kind of cover four broad questions. And so I'll ask you the first one, the big question. So what is this research about? You know, I think when you finish school and when you get into a work setting or just as years pass by, you have your sort of almost elevator pitch about your research, this sort of little quick synopsis of what it is and what it was about. Um, because for the most part, you know, a lot of people not in the academic world don't want you to be like, well, let me sit you down for three hours and walk you through uh, the intricacies of my methodologies. And they're like, I must go now. So um, you come sort of practiced at summing it up. And sort of, so it was interesting sort of to go back and I thought, you know, okay, I'll touch on these points and, you know, I'll say these things. I put a little rough outline together and then I went back and actually looked at my thesis and was like, oh, oh yeah, there was so much more to it than I remembered. Um, and then I was like, oh, I'll put some notes together for the podcast and the notes ended up being like 20 pages. And I was like, oh no, this is not necessarily the concise <laughs> summary that I wanted. So, <laughs> um, so that's just, a, was a, I think an interesting experience just looking back on the research and also how we remember the research once we're finished with it um, and how we can talk about it and I think that's really important because it does need to be I think discussed outside of an academic sort of setting in order for it uh, you know people outside of the academic world to to understand it and understand how it can be used um, in different ways so and this podcast is a great way I think of, of doing that of letting people sort of speak about their their research like that. So, um, my research, so what was my research about? In sum, I would say it's really about the inherent participatory educational methodologies made possible through sport. Um, so, you know, it's kind of the intersection of the sport world and the international development world um, with education kind of running through all of that and, and sport as a tool for um, a, a truly participatory education um, setting, whether it's, you know, I think community development, whether it's international development, whether it's just, uh, you know, a team at a school or whatever. I think there's a lot um, that can be tapped into to sport that makes it a really, really interesting and, and powerful tool for communicating and experiencing learning in a, in a different setting than um, sort of some of the more traditional top-down education. Um, so I guess, you know, that that's sort of, is the broad summary of, of my research and, and really looking at, um, you know, I think sport fits so well with a lot of, uh, you, know, you know, thinking around participatory education and development because it is inherently interactive and participatory. My research specifically focused on um, an organization called Grassroots Soccer, and they focus um, specifically on HIV and AIDS education, mostly in um, Southern African countries. Um, and so I focused on their program in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. 
um, and they they focus on using specifically soccer as a tool to educate um, youth about HIV and AIDS prevention. So that was, um, you know, I think there's a lot of ways you can use sport. Sport as a tool for development um, is discussed in a way as a way to address a lot of different international development um, sort of issues. Uh, but my research specifically focused on HIV and AIDS prevention. Right. Okay. So take us. Take us to the field, right? Take us to grassroots soccer in Port Elizabeth. So tell us, you know, if you were um, to describe the field to us, how would you how would you describe it? If you could tell us this like nutshell version of your research, how would you describe it? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, a participatory learning environment is really like what I saw when I, you know, I, I had read a lot about the programs before going to South Africa um, and kind of, you know, knew what what to expect. Um, but I think it was so powerful to have, you know, been thinking about the top-down education model and the need to really sort of turn that on its head, make it a more horizontal structure, one where um, students are more active participants in their learning. So as an example, I, I like to talk about a certain game that I saw when I first got to, to South Africa. Uh, Port Elizabeth, um, and I went out to the field and I was watching some of the students run through a game called Risk Field. And so, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of factors at play here. Um, South Africa has, you know, Port Elizabeth especially um, was chosen because it had very high rates of HIV and AIDS. Um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, treatment or medications, but, you know, prevention is so important and, and education and, and meaningful education is so important, but it's hard because it's a taboo subject in a lot of ways. Not everyone is really willing to talk. It's, it's a sensitive subject. It's a lot of the prevention discussion is wrapped up in, in discussions around sex that can be really um, hard for, for youth and, you know, parents to have. Um, and so it's taking a really, you know, sensitive subject and, so, okay, so I'll explain the game. <laughs> and so, okay, so this game is called Risk Field. And it starts off by everyone's, you know, so much of the learning. There are some games you do in the classroom, but a lot of it's outside. Um, and it's not necessarily a traditional game of soccer, but it's using soccer balls. And it's sort of what was done was set up um, a bit of a relay race. So all the students kind of lined up into four different lines. They each had a team. And there were some cones set up in front of the lines that they had to sort of dribble around. Like a very basic obstacle course for, you know, just soccer dribbling skills. And so the games are very iterative. Like they, they kind of start without students even really being aware that this is a learning, like we're going to learn something here. It just starts off as a game. And so the first round, it's like, all right, um, you know, you sort of dribble through these balls and, you know, it's just sort of getting kids started and they, they all kind of go through one round, get a little practice round. And then it's like, okay, so we're going to start now. And so um, each pylon basically represents a risk. And so they would sometimes label each pylon, you know, one would be unprotected sex, one would be, you know, maybe engaging in, in, with drugs and alcohol, different things that were viewed as, as risks or potential risks um, for, for contracting HIV and AIDS. And so the first round, the, the students are going through, and if they hit one of the cones, so if they sort of engage with one of the risks, they have to do one push-up. If they hit three cones, they'll have to do three push-ups. And so sort of the teams sort of go through, and everyone's doing their sort of push-ups as they need to, and that's kind of... Um, 
it's not really discussed at the time, but there's a, each activity follows up with a sort of team talk to talk about sort of what happened during the activity. And so what was discussed later is that that first initial go was sort of looked at as what happens to you as an individual when you engage with um, some of these risks and sort of understanding that there are consequences. I have to do a push-up if I engage in this risk. There, there are consequences to engaging with the risks. The second round, anytime someone on your team hits a cone, the whole team has to do push-ups. And so that's like the point of that is to say your friends and family are also affected by your engaging with different risk areas. If you actually contract HIV and AIDS, you're not only affected, but your family and friends are going to be affected as well, just by nature of loving and caring about you. And then the third round, anyone who hits a cone, the entire group has to do push-ups. So you can imagine like a lot of people are doing a lot of push-ups at this point, but that really is, is to show, um, the impact on the entire community when people are engaging in, in risky behaviors and contracting HIV and AIDS and the impact that can have on the community. And so I like that example because it is a very simple, you know, it's like a simple obstacle course. It doesn't take a lot to set up. And, you know, even as you're going through it, it's very fun. The kids are engaged. And, and again, they're not necessarily like all the lessons aren't coming at you as, as you're going through it. You're really just like having a really good time through this game. And then I think an absolutely essential part of, of this process is the, the I, I forget if it was called team talk or coach talk afterwards. Um, and so in every game, there's a key message and the game is designed to portray this key message, but it's only discussed afterwards. And so basically the discussion just ensues about, okay, how did you feel when you engaged, like when you had to do a push up, or how did you feel when you engage in a, you know, you hit a cone and everyone else on your team had to do a push-up and then it broadens out into this discussion about, okay, let's think about this, you know, not in a game context, but in a context of HIV and AIDS um, and how engaging with these risky behaviors affects you, how it affects your family. And then really, you know, the beauty of it is, is this, how this conversation comes out from the game Everyone's been engaged in this game together. They've kind of shared some camaraderie and, you know, maybe had some fun, built some trust amongst one another. And then the coaches are not actually their, their teachers. In some of the um, sessions or in some of the ways that some of the, uh, I guess, um, sessions were organized, sometimes it is a teacher. But in a lot of these sessions, they were sort of community coaches. So again, not having this sort of traditional, I'm your teacher and, you know, watch what you say or act a certain way and behave accordingly and you were only going to talk about this and that. Um, I think they're the power of, you know, people like coaches, people love soccer in, in a lot of these communities and so they know people that play on soccer teams or maybe some of their coaches. There's a different level of, um, I guess, respect but also just comfort um, with with these coaches and they're sort of going through this game with you and then they're they're you know the discussion is really not led by the coaches but having the coaches kind of prompt the kids to talk about how you know talk about it from a from a very maybe more difficult perspective that's not maybe as fun as the game but you're talking about um you know experiences coming into contact with risks around HIV and AIDS um and it really creates this environment where, where you know, a lot of my findings were that students felt like they were able to talk about things. They weren't 
able to talk about in different settings that um, they felt really listened to and that they weren't just being fed you know answers about what to do you know how to how to avoid HIV and AIDS you know anyone can sort of rhyme them off if they've been sort of taught them but to really go through the experience and really focus in on a key message and being involved in um, I think not just the discussion of that key message but almost in the creation of that key message like the as I said that they're not fed these key messages it comes out through this discussion and the coaches know what the key messages are that they're trying to sort of get to but it's never sort of fed to students as like this is what you do in this situation it's it's very much um an experience that people are participating in and discussing and then sort of coming to their own understandings of what this means for for their life interesting so it really brings to light this idea of an interactive model right in the sense that they're actually interacting with the sport but that they're also interacting with the quote-unquote teachers or the the educators in this um field right so like that and and with the other people who are playing with them yeah definitely it's it's a very it's just a different environment than a classroom setting where they're you know like writing on the chalkboard like wear condoms don't do drugs you know and you're like yeah writing it down in your notebook um you know but to really be engaged in a process where you're understanding why it's risky to engage in those things. And, you know, you experience it through a fun game initially, and then it opens up into a broader conversation. Um, you know, I think, and it's interesting, I think sport alone can't do that, right? Like you just, if it was just the relay race, uh, you know, and you were like, oh yeah, the, the, the pylons are risks. Okay. So just, you know, it, I think that alone also is not enough. It's the, imp- it's, it's tapping into that interactive environment and then really, further tapping into okay now we've sort of come together we've played this game like I said there may be some some trust that was built or camaraderie or it's just it just creates a very different environment to talk about um, these really sensitive things in which I think is is what's so powerful about it great Um, okay so I'd like to kind of dissect your thesis here so I want to start by asking you you know what is your main argument and then I kind of want to delve into each chapter of your thesis okay okay I think the main argument is that um you know stepping stepping back a little bit the field of sport for development I think is still very new um you know when I was doing my research about 10 years ago it was very new um maybe only about 10 years old um and you know broadening sport out as well and and just thinking about play so as an example the UN convention on the rights of the child article 31 is the right to play Um, and it's really interesting because through my my work sort of after my master's thesis um, we found out that that article of the convention is the most underreported on um, sort of really People think about sport and play in a very specific setting, but but they don't give it a lot of credit for maybe a lot of other benefits that can be gleaned from sport and play outside of just it's, you know, it's fun and it's interactive. It's, it is. Um, but when you tap into those things, that is so power, it becomes such a powerful tool. And I think that people think about sport and play in very traditional understandings. And so I think my main argument is that with a real focus on, with a real understanding of what sport and play can do, it can be shaped to be really effective tools for social change. Um, Not only just in the international development setting. So, I mean, I think part of my 
my research was trying to add some legitimacy to the sport for development research because I think it picked up very quickly in practice. A lot of people love sports, right? So it was a very, you know, a lot of a lot of organizations jumped on implementing, you know, play-based programming or sport program, especially for things like, you know, peace and conflict resolution, just even having tournaments of, you know, intergenerational tournaments or tournaments between maybe communities that um, had a lot of conflict and just even that alone like uh, it picked up very quickly in practice but the sort of research base or the policy base of the field was was very absent and so that was uh, I think one of my key motives was to just add um, some research some some research behind why sport and play can be such effective tools beyond just their traditional understanding. Um, So that was one thing, but probably more so was the importance of a participatory development environment. Um, So really, I think the main thing was the importance of a participatory um, development approach and just really changing the approach to development, whether it's international development, whether it's community development, or whether it's just development through education in the classroom, um, recognizing that there's more than just the top-down flow of communication and that um, knowing that and understanding there's a lot that can be gleaned from those either receiving the education or you know participants in the development project are not just these empty receptacles that you need to fill up with what you think is the best knowledge, but that there's so much that comes from the other end as well. And that's how I think projects are better and more effective and more powerful and how people can see their ability to affect change. Um, you know, you know, as I was working in the international development setting, there is, there are, I don't want to demonize the whole industry because there are really some, some organizations that get it and are really trying to sort of, um, you know, rather than looking at uh, taking like a needs-based approach, like, okay, you need this, you're lacking this. Um, I know there was, there's a sort of shift towards an asset-based approach. So looking at what communities have and what we can tap into to use um, in order to achieve change that they want to see, you know, rather than just coming in there cold and be like, oh, you, you guys don't have this? So we'll give you this then. And it's like, okay, well, sure, but maybe that's not not what they actually need or want, you know? Right. And, and, and I think it's, you know, it behooves these, like, solution-based groups to actually ask the groups that they're trying to help what they really need, right? Totally. Like, it, se- it seems so ridiculous, eh? Like, that it's like, yeah, of course, uh, of course you would, <laughs> you know, you, you would want to talk in order for the development or the change to be appropriate and effective. Of course, you have to have that, you know, the people sort of receiving this be a really important participants in the process. But it's just so much of our, so many of our systems are not designed um, to have that because they, it is about controlling the message and controlling power and keeping that power in the hands of only a few, really, you know, and I think I'll argue that the whole, a lot of the the sort of social good industry is really just maintaining the status quo by not truly getting to what, like, to to transformative change, but just kind of doing some change here and there, and based on metrics that they set themselves, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, and, 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 you know, like, it's, to me, it's, it's the power question on the one hand, but also the, just like the effectiveness question on the other, right? It's so much about, you know, feminists for a long time have been drawing on this notion of strong objectivity in research, right? That it's when you don't 
when you're doing research on women, but you don't ask the women, you know, <laughs> you're not really getting an objective answer, right? Yeah. You're, what you're doing is studying a population and telling them what they need totally. rather than really asking them what they need, right? So we only we can speak to our experiences and our needs from a subjective position, right? So subjectivity in that sense is really a strong objectivity. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and I think just, you know, the very paternalistic nature of being like, this is what you need. And it's like, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> uh, OK, so let me just reiterate here. So what I hear you saying in terms of your main arguments is two things, right? The first is that you're looking at the context or you're looking at the relationship, rather, of play and sport and social change. Yeah. Uh, so the impact of play and sport on social change. Um, but you're specifically looking at it in areas that at the time, at least, that you were doing this research, you didn't really see present, right? Which is mainly in the policy, the government, and especially the international development kind of arena. Mm -hmm. So that's argument one that you're mm -hmm. making. And the second argument that you're making is that this participatory model of development is so important but so ignored at the mm -hmm. same time right so you're you're kind of taking these two things and applying them to the very specific context of um you know a grassroots soccer this organization in port elizabeth in south africa yeah okay great um so Here's how we'll do this. I'm, I want to kind of delve into your methodologies, but we'll continue to talk about the research itself as we talk about the methodologies, because I think the way that your work is set up, we kind of have to address the methodologies in order to understand your research better, right? So, totally. Um, so tell us about your methodologies. Tell us a, a little bit about Grassroots Soccer, the organization. I, I'm very curious to know how long they've been around, you know, um, what they do. Uh, tell us a little bit. You, you gave us the example of the, uh, the 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 kind of um, exercise that they do there, uh, but tell us more about the organization and then tell us about your research method. Um, okay, so grassroots soccer uh, was developed in two thousand and two. Um, there was a, a professional soccer player and pediatrician named Tommy Clark. Um, he was born in Scotland, but he and his family moved to Zimbabwe when he was fourteen. Uh, he was the son of a professional soccer player. Uh, and coach of one of the nation's top professional teams. So Clark, you know, had a strong attachment to soccer throughout his life. He he left Zimbabwe and went to Dartmouth Dartmouth College, uh, and he played soccer there. But then returned to Zimbabwe as a professional soccer player. Um, and I think at that time had much more. I guess he really realized uh, the devastating impact that HIV and AIDS was having on. On the country and and a lot of other countries um, in sub-Saharan Africa, and so he, uh, with some of his teammates from his team in Zimbabwe that he was playing with, um, some the teammates were Ethan Zahn and Mathembe and Unlovu, and so the three of them started grassroots soccer in two thousand and two. Um, and, you know, the program is really based on three foundations. One is that kids learn best from people they respect. Two is that behavior change can only be successful if it's fostered by the larger community. 
and three, that learning is an active process which begins when the lessons learned are applied rather than just being heard and memorized. And so that, you know, I think that third point really is, is you can see that participatory, the importance of the participatory educational structure where kids are actively involved in the learning, have the time to talk about it, to, you know, talk about how it applies to their own lives with people that they feel comfortable with, that they respect because of who they are in, in the community. Um, and also, you know, a lot of the programs also had a lot of community events beyond just the students that were involved in, in the, the programs in school. And so those are sort of the key foundations of the program. Um, and I think what's what I really like about them as an organization is that, um, you know, some other sport for development organizations, I think, are very broad. They focus on all the ways in which sport can contribute to social change, which is a lot. You know, we talked about um, sports role in, in sort of teamwork and conflict resolution, um, sports role in enhancing the educational environment, sports role in talking about uh, health issues, um, you know, I, I could, or gender issues and making sport, um, you know, more inclusive. Like there's so many ways sport can be used. But what I like about grassroots soccer is they really focus in on using sport as a tool to educate about HIV and AIDS. It's, it's about HIV and AIDS prevention. So... Um, I was in South Africa for two months. Obviously, I had done quite a bit of, you know, desk research prior to going. Um, and interestingly enough, I, I was remembering how I sort of was able to get in touch with them for the first time. It, it is a hard thing to, you know, just cold call an organization and say, hey, can I come and sort of pick your organization apart for two months? And <laughs> not all organizations, I think, would be open to that night weirdly found someone that had done their research on grassroots soccer, which was quite rare. Um, and I, you know, I don't know, methods of the day, I found him through Facebook and I sent him a message on Facebook and asked, was just like, you know, I don't, I know you don't know me and sorry if this is slightly creepy that I found you, but you know, how did you go about sort of getting in touch with the organization? I figured that might be an interesting place to start. And he was great. He he got back to me and was really kind. And he actually had quite a good relationship with one of the founders. And so put me in touch. Um, and then through this random person that had also done his research on the organization, I was able to get in touch with one of the founders. And they were really... Um, yeah, they they were totally into it, which which I really respect too. Because again, place some of the places I've worked, I don't think would be as receptive to having someone come and study their program. Um, so it was sort of you know we talked about a lot of different things. I was doing a lot of desk research prior to going there, but had kind of established that I really wanted to do interviews with a lot of the students and a lot of the staff. Um, but, you know, I was very aware of my role as like a Western, uh, you know, outsider from a lot of these communities, um, especially in the international development context, being really cognizant of y your role, um, you know, uh, go going to communities. And, and it's interesting. So I basically did one month of participant observation and then one month of semi-structured interviews. And that participant observation was really aimed, like, it's, it's funny, it sounds more clinical kind of than I wanted to like I wasn't just you know I didn't want to just be someone that was standing in the corner taking notes on people like watching everyone's move and 
you know, I think it was more about familiarizing myself with some of the students, with some of the programs, and also having the students and the teachers understand who I was, why I was there, and so I wasn't just showing up on the day of being like, let me ask you two hours worth of questions about your experience with this program. Absolutely. And, and, you know, like as a qualitative researcher, I think that so much of participant observation is the stuff we don't end up writing about, right? So it's not the idea of actually observe. So much of it is obser- observing the community, right? But so much of it is also just gaining the trust of the totally. community, right? And just like being amongst and participating, right? So often people think of the observation part and not of the participant part, mm-hmm. right? And I think the participant part is really, really important because, you know, you, you are doing i don't want to say the work it's not the the right word to say but you are also partaking in these activities right and so you are kind of one with the community at that moment and so they don't see you as this person who just stands outside and observes but rather somebody who is engaged somebody who is interested and committed to this research definitely and i think you know that's so important for relationship building right is is and i think i think discussions, whether it's an interview or focus group, uh, I think would be made richer if you have a, a, you know, a good, just any relationship, any type of, you know, established, okay, I know who you are. There's a level of trust, you know, um, you know, having them understand I wasn't there on behalf of grassroots soccer, that I was, you know, doing my own independent research, really just sort of wanted to learn about how the program worked. Uh, but it was it was a bit awkward at times, you know, because there was a lot of like sitting on the side and taking notes and people were very aware that I was there. And, you know, it's again, you know, I just it, it can be a bit uncomfortable, but I, but I think it, it is what you make it right. It's it's how you do that observation and how you interact with people and your willingness. I think you have to be really willing. And, and I wanted to speak with people candidly rather than, you know, having to record everything. You know, there was certainly the time when it came to interviews where it was that type of format, but wanting to just, yeah, build a level of, of comfort and, and trust, I guess, with the people I would eventually be interviewing. So I started off with the with the um, <clears throat> participant observation, and I did hire a research assistant. Um, just you know, there was most people did speak English, but there were a lot of local languages that um, people sometimes were more comfortable speaking in, and and I wanted the research assistant to be there in case people felt they wanted to sort of speak in. Um, their sort of, you know, a language they were more comfortable in. Um, and she was also there to help bridge, you know, help create more trust and, and a bit more familiarity, which was a bit of a double-edged sword because she actually did work for grassroots soccer. And so it was interesting because I wanted someone who the students knew and trusted, and she was very much one of those people. But then she also worked for grassroots soccer and I was making a real effort to try to be like, this is not on behalf of grassroots soccer. And it wasn't, um, you know, but that was one potential issue was that she was part of grassroots soccer. And so and she was present in the interviews and that may have shaped what some students were felt that they were able to speak about um, the program. And that's another thing that I find just evaluation and development or or you know, program when there's sort of community development programs, um, 
a lot of people want the program to stay and so they're less willing to talk about maybe some of the bad aspects of it because they don't want it to you know negatively reflect on the program and then have the program be pulled and and not happen again so again that's that could probably be a whole other (laughs) podcast session of just the issues of trying to do development right in an environment that doesn't always allow you to speak so candidly about what isn't going right just based on this sort of funding model and stuff like that so um, after that month, you know, it was interesting during that, that month as well, I wanted to, it was really important for me to have, um, start to sort of own in on the schools that I wanted to focus in, where I was going to get my interview participants from, and then when I really focused in on two schools, you know, and there were a lot of factors like, are logistically, can we get there? Are they doing the program right now? Are there enough students that, that are willing to participate? And so, you know, we considered a lot of different factors, focused in on two schools, and it was great because one had uh, gone through the program the year before, and then the other school was currently going through the program. So there were people at different stages in the program, which was good. Um, And so once I really picked the two schools I was going to focus on, I had to set up information sessions for the parents and the students to really understand what I was doing to walk through the cons- consent and the assent forms that uh, the students and the parents or the guardians had to fill out. Um, and that was a really interesting process because I think, you know, I know for me in, in my education growing up, if there was something the school was doing, they send a note home with a, a student or whatever, you hold an information session, the, the parents show up. But it was just a very different setting. And I mean, certain things like I remember one, um, a parent of one of the children signing a consent form for about five of the other children because she was their guardian there were a lot of people that didn't have parents there were people whose you know grandmother took care of them who was who was illiterate and so handing them a consent form and just being like fill it out and sign it is really not meaningfully engaging in in dialogue with that person about what this research is actually going to look like so those sessions actually took quite a while to set up. We had to, I had to make sure there were a, a variety of different sessions to accommodate for people's different schedules or the ability for people to get to, to the school to hear this information session at a certain time. Um, I had my research assistant as well as a teacher or principal from the school present to help engage, um, you know, if people wanted to speak in their, the, the language they were more comfortable speaking in, which was not English, they were able to do that. Um, And then really making sure that people, like it was a sensitive issue to talk about. We were going to be talking about HIV and AIDS and the educational methodologies through which they're learning about these things. Um, And so really making sure the ethics were right, that things were discussed in the right way, that people understood they didn't have to participate in this, that they, you know, at any point in that interview process, they didn't want to do it anymore. They they didn't have to. Um, So really making sure that those were not just like a tick box exercise that you weren't just like, yep, did it, done, but at that people really truly understood what was what was gonna be discussed. And I was just gonna say that, right, is that, you know, some of the some of the things that I think we always realize as qualitative researchers is that those ethics um, mandates or requirements are treated like tick boxes, right? Totally. So, so it's really important, I think, uh, as qualitative researchers that we don't treat ethics as a hurdle and that we actually look at it as something that is, you know, our responsibility and that has impacts on the communities that we're doing research with. And so that's refreshing. So I, I want to thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I knew that was, you know, really important to me. And, and also, you know, I don't, I don't want 
to do harm in my research. I don't want to go in and talk about these really awful things and I get to go back to, you know, an environment that's, um, you know, where I don't have to personally deal with a lot of this stuff and, you know, leave people maybe, maybe I've brought up really hard things for them to talk about and they're, and then just be like, all right, see you guys later. I got what I need. You know, it's just, I don't want to do harm in my research. And I think, again, people might not intend to do harm in their research, but that might be the impact and having to think about some unintended consequences. And I, and I learned a lot through that process as well. Um, so yeah, that, that was a really interesting experience. And, and I think, Another thing that in retrospect I think was probably a bit of an issue was um, that I chose all my volunteer or I chose all my interview participants just based on who volunteered. And so I know that that's a volunteer bias, right? Like people that volunteer to be part of an interview might, you know, just by nature be, you know, willing to maybe they want to participate for a certain reason. Um, rather than having like a nice sort of stratified sample where you're making sure you're bringing in different demographics of people or, you know, different ages, making sure you have different genders represented. Um, and I think, you know, I, I did it that way because I didn't want to, I, I, you know, I obviously didn't want to force anyone to talk about these issues if they didn't want to. Um, these were like 12 to 14 year olds going to be discussing HIV and AIDS. I didn't want to force <laughs> anyone to do that. Um, so I, I sort of put, put the question out there. I was like, who want, who would be willing to participate in these interviews? And I got about 33 students, which is a pretty small sample size, but that's what I was able to get. And that's, that's who I interviewed. Right. And I think, you know, I mean, so here's the thing, when it comes to the convenience sample, I think that a lot of people, it gets a lot of slack. A lot of people yeah. are always harping on the convenience sample. <laughs> and I understand that we want ideally representative kind of randomized results, right? But at the same time, there's something to be said about taking a deep dive and delving into a community who is really interested and who wants to participate and is volunteering their time, right? And so there is something that is participatory in nature about that as well, true, right? Yeah. And I think that's kind of undermined in qualitative research. Yeah, that's that's really nice to hear because I, 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 I don't know if I was even aware of volunteer bias, to be honest, when I was doing this research. And I don't even know how it came up, but I, I do rem remember like one day just being like, oh, oh no, <laughs> oh no, I, I did that in my research, <laughs> you know, and just being like, oh, God, it's not valid at all. Um, and, you know, I think it is hard to have, you know, a total, like a randomized control trial type of research. Like that's not possible for a lot of people's, I mean, I had very little funding to do this, right? Like yeah, I funded most of this myself, honestly, to, to travel there. Well, I mean, my, my student loan funded it, but, <laughs> but it wasn't like I had a, um, a ton of resources at my disposal to be able to really set up um, a, a controlled environment for these discussions. And so I think, yeah, I, it wasn't about forcing anyone to, to have these conversations, but. Well, that's the other thing too, right? Is that like a convenient sample is better than no sample. And I, and yeah. I think, you know, like qualitative research, however small still tells us something, right? And so it might not be nationally representative, but it still is better. I think a lot of people shy away. A lot of scientists, especially in social scientists kind of shy away from research because they're like, well, we don't have the resources to kind of execute this broad research where we can, you know, do these very 
uh, and I'll note problematic surveys sometimes mm, yeah. with, you know, something along the lines of 6,000 participants across the country randomly. Uh, we don't all have the resources to be able to do that, but exactly. it's still great to be able to draw from these 33 interviews that you had, because as you're going to, you know, I'm sure tell us in a few minutes, uh, uh, these interviews probably told us something illuminating that the, the gap in the literature that you went after to begin with didn't have right yeah totally and I think I think it's just about acknowledging what your research is right like you know yeah this wasn't a study that used a big enough sample to be generalizable to the entire like global population but is it telling of certain things like yes absolutely exactly okay so you did interviews with 33 students and you said you did interviews with the uh, schools as well or yeah with the educators? so I did um Okay, so I interviewed four different coaches um, who had been working with grassroots soccer for at least 10 months and were familiar with how the program worked and how it was delivered. Um, And then I also interviewed uh, five full-time staff from grassroots soccer. So one was the project coordinator um, from Port Elizabeth who was my research assistant. So I also did interview her. Uh, The Port Elizabeth site coordinator, um, a master coach of the program, the research and advocacy director, and the training and curriculum manager. So those, some of those were based in Port Elizabeth, some were in Cape Town. All right, great. So, uh, okay, so you did, so nine kind of educators in total yep. and 33 students. Yes. And your, your interviews were what, one hour semi-structured? Yeah, it was about, it was about an hour, uh, maybe an hour and a half semi-structured and really open-ended questions. So, you know, knew kind of the key things I wanted to glean from the conversation, but also not wanting obviously to make them just like yes or no questions. Um, so yeah, semi-structured, but with a lot of sort of flexibility to sort of go a lot of different routes. Um, I guess in in the discussion and my research assistant was was there for all the I think all the discussions except some of the staff in in Cape Town that I interviewed because she didn't come to Cape Town with me um and which was fine they all they all spoke English um really well so they they were comfortable to conduct the interviews in English okay perfect and so okay so tell us your results so what what did people tell you so maybe actually maybe I'll just talk about some of the interview questions like where I kind of went um you know, I started, I started by kind of just talking about soccer and how they felt about soccer, if they like it, like, you know, just a a bit of a comfortable topic and sort of gauged, um, who was a soccer player, who, who liked soccer, who didn't care for soccer at all. Um, and then really sort of owned in on, um, the, their experience with the grassroots soccer program and talked a lot about it in contrast to their, um, you know, educational experience in, in the classroom and sort of really just talking about the different style, how they felt in what, in like both settings, um, what they learned in both settings, how they felt, um, you know, their ability to share and their willingness to share in either setting. Um, so, you know, when it comes to like some of the earlier questions about who played soccer and who liked soccer, you know, I think only about 51% of the students said they played soccer seriously. Um, but 90% of them stated that they, they do like the game. Um, one really interesting thing is that, uh, you know, 100% of the students, every single one stated that they felt that the coaches could relate to them or, or understand them. And so that feeling of, um, yeah, understanding and trust and that, rela- that importance of that relationships between the students and the 
coaches or the, the sort of people that were chosen to be coaches for this program is such a key part of that. Um, 12% of students said that they were hesitant to speak freely about um, personal or sensitive issues during the grassroots soccer sessions, but the rest of them, 88% of students stated that they were comfortable doing so. And then 32 out of the 33 students said that they felt comfortable discussing personal or sensitive issues outside of the grassroots soccer session. So that, again, um, the importance of who is, who is leading the programs um, and the environment that they create I guess, to have participants freely and openly discuss really sensitive things in, not only in the session, because, you know, there was still 12% of students that didn't really feel comfortable in that session, but having 32 out of 33 of the students saying that they could really go and, and talk to their coach outside of the session, I think, again, speaks to the importance of the, the environment that's created in those learning sessions and, um, the importance of that comfort and that trust built with the person um, rather than maybe it being a teacher that in a more traditional setting would be maybe more judgmental or um, maybe not someone that the student really wanted to engage with outside the classroom at all. So before the grassroots soccer interventions, only about 63% of the students said that they had received education relating to HIV and AIDS, um, which they said really was just a, a small bit of information through mostly school programs, some community programs. Um, but all of the students, so all 33 of the students stated that after going through the grassroots soccer program, they felt more comfortable and better equipped with the proper information, um, not only to think about HIV and AIDS prevention for themselves, but to talk about it with people. Um, and so again, uh, you know, 63% of them had talked, had received some education before. That means that, oh no, that's some quick math. 37% of them hadn't at all really engaged in talking about HIV and AIDS um, in, in a place where HIV and AIDS is so prevalent. Um, and then having all of them feel more comfortable to speak about HIV and AIDS after the grassroots soccer session, I think was really, um, really key. 100% of the students that I interviewed um, said that they, they truly felt that the grassroots soccer program listened to what they had to say, which, you know, n not a lot of them really talked about in, in their sort of more traditional educational setting, feeling like they were listened to. Um, one student told me, I feel that I can speak things that are in my heart when he was asked if he felt comfortable speaking in the grassroots soccer sessions. Um, many of the students that were interviewed stated that there was more opportunity to speak throughout the grassroots soccer sessions than in school due to the way the, the coaches facilitated the dialogue without imposing strict guidelines or, um, you know, really making it about you better answer this right or, you know, you're going to get punished in some way. It was really just an open dialogue where they felt they could openly talk about things, even if they, it wasn't sort of correct. There was no, like, correct or incorrect. I mean, there was obviously discussion around, you know, what's a good method to prevent HIV and AIDS, but there was, it was mostly just a lot of discussion and a lot of talking about personal aspects of the students' lives that they, they really couldn't do in the more, you know, class, traditional classroom setting. So one student told me, this is a quote, when I'm in class, I don't feel the same way as when I'm in grassroots soccer. I feel too small to talk about those things, which were HIV and AIDS, with the big people in school. And I remember one of the staff that I interviewed in Cape Town 
was talking about the difference between the top story and the bottom story and, and the top story being like wear a condom but the bottom story is like why condoms aren't being worn I mean that is the like the majority of students knew that yes yes you're supposed to wear a condom you know they maybe in some of the education they had received prior to the grassroots soccer program they were they were taught that but um, I'll just read you this quote uh, you know because we were talking about the bottom story or the root of the story is why the condoms are not being used. Um, and so this particular staff member said, the idea is that the curriculum becomes tailored, tailored to each group of kids. So, you know, if the kids already know about condoms, you don't have to spend an hour with them just saying condoms prevent HIV and AIDS. Spend that hour actually discussing what we call the bottom story. Get to what keeps us from using condoms. You know, what are the challenges to using condoms consistently? Within a relationship, if a girl is dating an older guy that doesn't want to use condoms, you know, those are the conversations that need to happen. And my guess is, frankly, that they're not happening in schools where it's just a teacher with a book in front of them talking to them about the biology of HIV and AIDS. And I think the type of environment that grassroots soccer creates through their coaches that they use and through just the, you know, being actively involved in a game and then sitting and talking about that experience um, really creates an environment that, from, from my findings, like the majority of the students found more effective, more comfortable, and that they were, you know, even excited to talk to other people about it because they had tools. They could maybe talk about some really difficult things in a bit of a game context. I know one student was telling me he went home and, and did a lot of the games with his siblings. And so it's that sort of, I don't know, transmission of information made more possible through if that information is coming through a channel that's more fun rather than, you know, the student going home and sitting his siblings down on the couch and being like, wear a condom and like reading from a book, you know, the siblings would be like, oh God, you know, Jimmy's at it again, doesn't understand <laughs> what we're, you know, going through here or whatever. Um, I just think that the, the, the games also give you the tool to, can, to keep talking about it beyond um, just the program that you're going through. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's so, I mean, it warms my heart to just hear about these kind of programs being put in place in the development context that seem quite reciprocal and seem quite well thought out and reflexive, right? And and so, you know, I, I kind of want to just bring it back to the original point that you were saying when, when I was asking you about your main arguments, right? So bringing it back for kind of the listeners full circle. Um, so, you know, looking at this relationship between play and sport and social change, would you say then that your findings, um, you know, found this positive relationship between sport and social change, but one that was very much contextualized within this participatory uh, model for, for education? 100%. Yeah, I think it was it definitely contributed. And again, you know, we've spoken about this being a small sample, um, you know, but even within that small sample, like I, I'm just looking at the appendix where my findings are a little more easily summed up and things like, you know, when I asked all the students if they had, you know, prior knowledge of HIV and AIDS and, you know, about 63% of them had sort of done it in school. But then I asked them after the grassroots soccer program, do you talk to others about HIV and AIDS? All of them said that they do. Okay, great. And so um, I guess I guess we've kind of covered ground here for all of the questions. Uh, but I, I want to ask you the, the kind of 
ultimate question, which is uh, about the desired practical outcomes of your research, right? And the reason I say practical is that um, often, you know, we go into doing research and we have a lot of desired outcomes from that research. But I think more effectively for this podcast, at least, what I really want us to hone in on is the idea of, um, you know, practical outcomes. So, so what are those desired practical outcomes? And I'm not sure if you've reached them or <laughs> if you're still working on that or let us know. I guess one of the practical outcomes of my research is really, um, I guess, like adding legitimacy to the field of to using sport and play as tools for effective education and development. Um, One of the things that I learned when I was part of um, the work that I did around the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and Article 31, which is the right to play being very underreported on, it was interesting reading about why it was so underreported on and people just didn't really see the value of it. And I think a lot of it was a lack of understanding of what play actually is. And when you look at play and sport, um, there's a lot of different ways it's practiced. It's not something that's universal. It's, it's, uh, it's very nuanced in and of itself. And I think, um, being able to talk about that and study it and point to the different ways the different types of sport and play that can be used for really effective education and development um, is needed in the field, in the sport for development field. It needs it needs more of that sort of research and policy underpinning to sort of complement the practice that is, has picked up quite quickly. There's a lot of practice of using sport as a tool for social good, but really, um, I think, uh, I guess, adding more sophistication to the field. And I don't mean that in a, I don't mean to you know, say that it's an unsophisticated field, but I don't think it gets the recognition it deserves because sport has this very, um, people have very traditional understandings of what it is. They understand it in a very specific context and to think of it as a tool for social change is not, I think, um, top of mind to a lot of people. So I think adding, um, I guess, some research to that conversation in the sport for development world is something I'd like to see. But more broadly, it's about, approaching social change differently it's you know and that's a pretty lofty goal I don't know if that's a practical um goal I I I wish it wasn't I think it can be but yeah just generally always thinking about um I think power imbalances in the sort of social good and social change work we do and if we truly want to achieve transformative change we need to do things differently absolutely thank you so much emma for joining us um you know it's been really a pleasure to hear more in depth about all of your research and about your perspectives and i'm sure that uh it's been a treat for everybody who's listening at home or in their cars or walking around like i do uh, (laughs) or biking like you do (laughs) But, you know, if someone wants to stop you and tell you that they're sweaty, you need to, like, interrupt your podcast. You're listening to, to receive these important messages from, from people. No, but thank you so much for, um, you know, this was really fun. It was really interesting to sort of look back at my research almost 10 years later um, and be like, yeah, I'm really still passionate. And I still see so much of the need for this discussion. It's interesting. You know, 10 years has passed, but it's it's almost more relevant today than it was then. So thank you very much for bringing me on. And I really look forward also to, you know, uh, if you uh, end up doing more research in this area or more publications, please do let us know. Um, Of course, I'm sure that everybody here will be interested in knowing about your future work as well. Definitely, I will.
All right, thanks. That about does it for today's episode. If you have comments about the show or would like to connect with us, you can email us at insearchpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at podcastinsearch. If you're conducting or recently conducted original research, we'd love to have you as a guest on our show. Please visit insearch.ca and click the link to contact us. Join us next month for an insightful look at institutional and state competition in the field of political and historical sociology. And once again, we'd like to thank you for joining us on the InSearch podcast. Stay curious. Thank you.